When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every snap is an interview. After the snap. What a snap. And keep your mouth shut, 50! I lead by example. With Blake and Reed Ferguson discussing life in, out, and after football. To be able to leave walking away with a degree and a championship, uh, it couldn't be any better. Yeah! Well, you can take this boy out the real south on a bunch. Can't take the real south out of my voice. And now here we go again. Twist a little bit of teeth because I got thick skin. Welcome into After the Snap. My name is Blake Ferguson, long snapper for your Miami Dolphins. I'm joined with my co-host, Reed Ferguson, my brother, and long snapper for the Buffalo Bills. We are here ready to rock with a super special guest on today's pod. We hope that you guys are as fired up as we are about it. Reed, what you got? Hey, I'm I, I'm uh, you, you know, there's snow on the ground. Couldn't be me. Could not be me. There's snow on the ground. Um, that's kind of that's top of my mind at the moment. It's November sixteenth, and we've got snow on the ground. But that means it's football season. That yeah, that's football weather. If if you ask me, not these eighty degrees de- degree days that we're still having in Miami. <laughs> we're we're used to white Christmases up here, so hopefully we get one this year. But wanted to recap. Uh, this past weekend's games real quick before we hop into our interview. Uh, we, we went down to, uh, important distinction, New Jersey this weekend to play the New York Jets. We won. We beat them 45-17. It was a great game uh, to kind of bounce back after last week. Pretty good all around. I mean, it was very, you know, I guess it was, it was as complimentary as you can get when you're talking about uh, complimentary football is kind of all three phases uh, really were firing on all cylinders on Sunday. But, you know, T-Bass continues to, I think he's he's top in the league in field goal percentage. Um, I mean, he is just, he's doing so well. So, you know, kind of bright spot, I guess, from a special teams perspective. But yeah, it was fun. Uh, f- and it's always nice when we go play there for a one o'clock game because we get home uh, at a somewhat reasonable hour on Sunday evening. So um, it was nice, uh, nice to go there and get a win. But uh, you guys played a couple days before Thursday night football. You played Baltimore in Miami. We also won. And like we discussed last week, playing in the primetime is so much fun. Yes. Love a primetime game, especially when it's at home, because when you play in the primetime away, you get home at like 4.30 a.m., 4 a.m., and it's it doesn't make it quite as fun. But, yeah, it was, I think, it, it was great. I think getting ho- the, the home when you're playing primetime away, the arrival time back home is irrelevant if you win. Yeah. I would agree with that. I couldn't care less. If we win primetime on the road, I don't care when we get home. I can, yeah, I can agree with that. But we, yeah, so we beat Baltimore. 
on Thursday night, and it was nice to play Thursday because we had Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. And on Saturday, I hosted a Veterans Day Salute to Service barbecue event for local active military and veterans in our South Florida community. Uh, so that was very fun and very rewarding for me just to be able to, you know, the least I can do is buy those guys some lunch and just tell them how much I appreciate their service. Uh, we had a good turnout and we had a few other guys on the team show up to uh, support as well. So that was that was pretty awesome to do. I know uh, you actually have, have a, an event set up uh, is it this upcoming weekend? Yes, this Saturday uh, at First Line Brewing here in Orchard Park. They were kind enough to allow me to host uh, a similar event. Thank you for the idea. Where I am doing first drink and appetizer. Um, so hoping to get you know a lot of the local uh, active and uh, active and former military guys. I know there's quite a few around here that I've met and, and, and work with and became friends with. So, uh, hoping to see some familiar faces on Saturday, but thoroughly well, excited. Let me, let me just say, I, I, if you live in the Buffalo Western New York area, uh, and you listen to our pod, feel free to reach out to vets in your community that you may be friends with, no family, anybody like that to attend Reed's event. I know it's going to be a great time. Saturday, 12 to 2. Go get a free beer and an appetizer. 12 to 2, First Line Brewing in Orchard Park. Yep, looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Well, we have one more thing that we want to get to before we move on to our special interview that we have with Lonnie Paxton, three-time Super Bowl champ on this week's pod. We have our Week 10. I guess it's sort of Week 10. It is probably not for this particular player because he's in college, but for us, it's still week 10 after the snap clutch snapper of the week. This week, we actually have a special story about the Pittsburgh state long snapper who is an automotive technology major who was able to fix the broken down team bus on their way to Fort Hayes State to beat them 34 to 24. That's a, Timmy, that is incredible. Timmy Malinowski, I believe is how you say his name. Uh, he's the long snapper for Pittsburgh State. He's a freshman. And when the bus broke down, I guess the driver as well as some of the staff got off the bus, observed what was going on with it, and then they called up Timmy Malinowski from the back of the bus to come and see if he could fix it. Sure enough, he was able to. They were able to get on to uh, Fort Hayes State and go get a big victory. Congrats to Timmy Malinowski for his clutch, super clutch, snap of the week. Congrats, Tim. Way to go, Tim. Well, it's time to get to this week's interview with Lonnie Paxton. Check it out right after this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Welcome back to After the Snap. We are here with today's special guest. He was a four-year starter at Sacramento State. Played 12 years in the league, nine with the Patriots, three with the Denver Broncos, winning three Super Bowls throughout his career. He's famously known for the snow angel in the end zone after Adam Vinatieri's game-winning field goal during the 2001 AFC Championship. And since then, he's been involved with a number of different organizations and businesses since his official retirement in 2017, but even before that. We have Lonnie Paxton on the show today. Welcome in, Lonnie, and thanks for joining us. What's up, fellas? Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, at least I'm not known for launching something over someone's head or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we really appreciate you coming on, and um, we hope to be able to tell a little bit of your story today because we have a lot of long-snapping fans that listen to our podcast But without further ado, our first question for you, we know that you were a four-year starter at Sacramento State playing O-line and long snapper. Um, At what point did you know that you were going to switch over from playing O-line and snapping to just, uh, just long snapping as your career path? Oh, man. I mean, it was probably the first time they put me in inside run after practice with all the other uh, rookies and, and, you know, uh, bubble guys from, you know, first, second years. You know, I took it as a little bit of a, a pride hit, you know, playing offensive line and, and playing 60, 70 plays a game in college and high school. And that and now, you know, just being over there with the kickers, kind of watching practice and just doing what you do uh, for the longer, you know, in the first couple of years, I just felt uh, obligated to go do something else. So I'd sit and watch. I'd go to a couple of line meetings. I'd, I'd watch them practice, obviously attend all the special team stuff. But I mean, it's pretty early on that that, you know, it was evident my body wasn't getting bigger and I was the only guy who could do it uh, on the team. So worked out well. I hear you uh, on that. I, I was uh, Blake. Blake was a little different after me, but uh, I started snapping in eighth grade. And then throughout high school, I kind of did both. I was I played pretty much every position on the O-line and then snapped also. So I, 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 I hear you when you say you kind of feel like half of your half of your football duties are kind of like you know you kind of feeling left out a little bit and it's kind of a weird deal when you're just kind of when I got to LSU it's just like all right you know we're up the first 15 minutes of practice and then you know you kind of just go off and do your own work instead of you know I'm I'm so used to four years of high school going and doing o-line drills and team stuff and yeah. you know one-on-ones and stuff like that the whole the whole practice so i hear you there but uh, at, least, what, at least we wore a 60s number man right you no know, so in the <laughs> locker room we could kind of be with the guys yeah <laughs> i was yeah I, I hear you i'm yeah 69 now is 64 in high school so I'm, I'm i'm right there with you as far as your transition from snapping in college to snapping in the league what talk talk to me kind of tell us about that transition from when you were in college, did you guys run pro style, spread punt? You know, how did, how was that transition to learning the blocking schemes in the NFL? Well, I mean, playing offensive line in college, I think, helped me block a lot of bit in the, in the league. What I was never good at was covering. You know, that was – I remember, you know, playing a 10 or 11, 12-play drive and having to punt and, and just like, oh, okay, God, you know, and throw it and, and just be the middle safety and just, you know, grinding it down the field because I, so, I was so gassed. And I was heavier. I was in the 280s and stuff in college. And so it's like, hey, you know, drop a couple pounds. You're just going to focus on 
on, uh, you know, snapping and blocking. And so I, I prided myself as, you know, b- between me and Larry Izzo there of just owning the middle of the rush and understanding the stunts and, and everything they could, they could pick up or throw at us. So, you know, my first training camp, it was all about, they would, they would put me on a, on a rookie, uh, linebacker and just one on one for about 30 snaps post practice. And they didn't put cones or anything. So I felt like I got beat every time, but it was just teaching me to get my head out, get back and be able to see them and adjust, you know, left or right. So that was a big transition for me. Um, whereas in college, you know, you really didn't have much blocking uh, responsibilities, but pulling from my O-line days of, of how to pick up stunts and, and really work with your guards and pass things off, I think helped me. Yeah, one of the, I think, and I've talked to Blake about this just as he, he you know, he was a rookie last year. I'm this going in, I'm in my sixth year now. One of the hardest parts, I think, at this position, such a steep learning curve going from not blocking in college to having to learn, like you just talked about, having to learn uh, all the stunts and the rushes and stuff, you know, all the different looks that, that punt rush teams can throw at you. One of the hardest things to transition to is is getting your head and your eyes up after the snap um, and being able to know to to kind of catch your bearings in that split second uh, and kind of make your make your move on your guy. But uh, switching gears here a little bit, you know, you played with Vinatieri uh, for for a, for a good bit in your career. We kind of grew up Colts fans. Our parents went to Tennessee, so we kind of followed Peyton and the whole deal. So. We kind of watched when he was in Indy, but you know, you snapped for quite a few of his game-winning field goals. That's pretty a pretty notable part of your career. We've spoken to a couple other snappers that have snapped with kicking and punting legend, you know, legends of the game. What made Vinatieri kind of different from the rest of the kickers that you have been with or come into contact with in your career? I think he was going into his fifth year, my rookie year, and and uh, you know really took me under his wing and showed me what a pro is. And and like I said earlier, you know you you are off by yourselves and you are doing your own thing and kicking and snapping and punting and holding and whatnot. But he worked just as hard as everyone. Ran you know sprints in between periods and and work, you know got there early to get his lift in and and was doing extra stuff after with his body. If he shanked one or had a bad day at kicking, we were after there you know throw another twenty thirty balls. Uh, just trying to get it right. So he was a perfectionist and it helped me, you know, he trusted in me. So it, 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 we worked really good together and I had a great holder, you know, Adam was obviously the one who got all the notoriety, but your holder is the one you got your mojo with. So my rookie year was Lee Johnson. He'd already been seven in 17 years when I came as a rookie. And then it went to uh, Ken Walter and then Josh Miller, three really good holders that, you know, showed me some of the, the ways to, to almost, adjust to bad weather, adjust to wind, you know, help the kicker. If he's having a bad day, we work together, you know, on, on, depending on if, if it's a, you know, if it's just sloppy mess in front of me and then how he kind of offsets and, and would open his shoulders a little bit to give me more of a, almost a strike zone like a catcher would. So a lot of the tricks of the trade and help me get laces, you know, I, I wasn't really getting laces when I came in and it was something that I had to work on. Um, so Finitary, great, showed us the pay the path, but you know, having that great holder there as that kind of cornerstone was was crucial. Yeah, and and you hit on it a little bit, snapping in bad weather. I mean, I you know, you played in Buffalo, you know, a bunch during your career, and obviously New England, you get some pretty bad weather games there the second half of the season. How how did you what are some things that you that you do to adjust to, you know, heavy winds, heavy rain, you know, snow even? 
I mean, for me, I would concentrate on my spiral. Um, my grip obviously was one of, was unorthodox. A lot of guys would hold, you know, your, your offhand kind of on the top of the ball. I kind of held it more in a circular shape and would just kind of cock my wrist. So my follow through was, was, was much more pronounced. My, you know, just really focusing on my spiral to just cut through the wind, especially, you know, if it's wet and the, the ball's heavy and it's tough to grip and you still, it's windy. You know, I'd really work with my holder on, you know, opening up his shoulders, like I said, give me a good strike zone, show me his his body and his number, not just, you know, kind of look through his hand, not just right at his hand, but almost through it. We would practice with wet stuff. Belichick never put us indoors uh, very rarely. I mean, we were out in six inches of snow or buckets of rain and, you know, he's you better just dress warm is what he told us. So, you know, we'd be out there, I'm sure you guys too. So um, practicing in it helped us play better in it. Um, but at the end of the day, sometimes it was a guess. I was just, I was just chucking it back there and hoping for the best. Been there, done that. I know. I mean, I, we we played in Buffalo. It was snowing sideways, man. We yeah. We were uh, we we kicked a PAT and and the ball went up and it came back at us. It did. I mean, it went through, but it came back and hit the O line basically in the back. They thought it was a, a, a you know a muffed punt or something, but like no, it went in. It just the wind pushed it back. So yeah, more. <laughs> God love you. That's crazy. That's crazy. Well, throughout your 12-year career in the NFL, I'm sure you had some competition. You dealt with um, training camp, you know, with some other long snappers that the teams might have brought in. How did you deal with competition throughout your career? We, uh, a big part of what we talk about with a lot of the guys that we interview is is competition and sort of your mentality going into that. How did you specifically deal with competition throughout your career? You know, I think you deal with it in different ways. It's all, you know, my, my rookie year, I, I came in, I was fourth on the depth chart. It was me and another rookie, and there was two veterans. And it was a bad weather practice. And at the end of the practice, those three other guys were gone. And it was just kind of, it landed in my, my lap because I threw strikes on that day and they didn't. Moving forward, they brought in another guy as well, but I had already had this little bit of a, a rapport with the holder and Vinatieri. So we had our, our things down and, you know, some guys come in and they try to oversnap. They try to, you know, throw a thousand balls a day because they think, you know, that someone's going to see him working harder or someone, you know, someone's going to, uh, you know, say, how look how hard that guy's working off by himself. But I was all about quality over quantity. And as long as I kind of got those good reps in and felt like it and was, was, you know, icing my elbows down and doing the right thing, stretching afterwards and, and taking care of, uh, you know, the, the kind of the snappers strength and the muscles we use, you know, it, it all just kind of, uh, worked out, you know, competition's healthy. I think, you know, you don't ever want to go in there and not feel like you're looking over my shoulder. I mean, that's one thing Belichick to this day, I feel like he still could cut me tomorrow and I don't haven't played for that guy for 15 years. You know, that's just something he instilled in everybody, um, on a daily basis. And so I take it with me in my daily life, my, my business career, but it's, it's something that uh, was very healthy for us to just always feel like we could be cut. Yeah, that's a good point. I hear, I hear you on that. Um, as far as, you know, approaching a new season, you know, you uh, approaching maybe the, uh, you know, OTAs or, get, you know, getting yourself ready for training camp for a new season where, you you know, maybe there is some competition. Maybe you're the only guy on the team. What are a couple things that, a couple uh, benchmarks say that you kind of need to hit so you know you're ready to enter the season uh, mentally uh, or, you know, mentally or physically. 
you know, we had a, a good morning group where we would come in at 6 a.m. With, with the kickers, the quarterbacks. And so we had the, this good kind of progression, I guess, through uh, April all the way through OTAs where, you know, we were obviously hitting, doing our stuff on the field, doing our stuff in the weight room, working on certain things after. I, I remember using a lot of uh, resistance bands, um, snapping and then throwing, you know, balls that were, uh, you know, super. they felt really light. And so I kind of, my progression was get those long muscles stronger and, and beef them up. And, you know, all these kind of muscles that your, uh, your lats and, and lower back and back of your shoulders, deltoids and stuff. And then, uh, practice with a regular ball. So I would, I would hit all my resistance stuff that I practice with a regular ball. And, uh, some of those benchmarks was how close I could get to perfect, you know, 10, 15, 20 times in a row. It's almost like shooting a heavy ball in basketball and then going right to a regular ball. So, you know, for me, it was it was kind of muscle confusion along the way to like say, hey, now it's now it's really heavy. Now it's really light. Now there's a lot of resistance and finding, you know, that different track underneath my legs that was helping me get to that perfect uh, snap. And so um, not really like specific benchmarks, but I kind of had this, you know, couple week progression where I would build up to that and finally be ready to get into training camp. Lonnie, you're famous for, and we and we mentioned it earlier. You're famous for your snow angel celebration after Vinny hit the game winner uh, in the AFC Championship, I believe it was in 2001. Was that pre-planned? Uh, can you just tell us a story on that? I know there's everything you read about Lonnie Paxton is like, man, this is the this is the guy that that, that was doing the snow angel. So. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about that. It was one of those things. I mean, um, I'm a Cali kid, right? So I had a bunch of people in town, guys yeah. I played college with. One of my high school coaches were in town that game, and it was a night game. And uh, they're slugging beers at the house and just like, you know, they're getting ready for tailgate season. And I, I usually on game day, I don't want to talk to anybody that much. I don't want to hang out. But you know, it was much better than the crappy hotel they put us at. So, you know, they're just enjoying themselves. And they're, it's going to be a blizzard tonight, man. We're going to – we're going to beat the Raiders, uh, who I grew up hating because I was an L.A. Rams fan growing up in Southern California. So it's like, we're going to beat the Raiders. We're going to do snow angels in the parking lot, man. It's going to be crazy. you know. So they kind of put that in my head. And then we get to the game, and I told one of the linemen, hey, man, I, all my all my buddies are just getting hammered at the house. And they said, you know, let's do snow angels and celebrate in the parking lot afterwards. Like, yeah, let's do it. So it comes time to, you know, we hit the 48-yarder that, you know, the greatest kick of all time. and then. You know, when we go into overtime and just a chip shot to win, I was like, shit, I mean, the end zone's right there. It's a pile of snow. <laughs> you know, why not? So it was kind of a reaction thing. And, and the guys who I had told about it, they went and celebrated with Vinny and got on the cover of Sports Illustrated in the middle um, <laughs> of the field. And so I was kind of left alone there. And then that's all that everyone can talk about. And to this day, that's what a lot of people, you know, old, older fans will talk about. And uh, so I did it in the in the Super Bowl. I was like, uh, "Hey, man, you know, I guess if you want some here, I'm gonna right. give you a bunch." That's awesome. You kind of made it. You kind of made it your own. Yeah, and I love right. that. The end of your career in New England, kind of moving on to Denver. What was it like for you to go into a new locker room in Denver uh, after having been in New England for so long? Did you implement some of the same things that you'd done in New England? Was it you know the same for you? How was that kind of different? It was different in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I honestly had – I struggled with leaving New England. Um, you know, they were just not at a point to offer me any financial stability, which, you know, my agent was like, hey, you know, we've won some games. You won some Super Bowls. 
now it's time to focus on, you know, your family and, and what you can get. And so, you know, Belichick was never going to give me a five-year deal with, with, you know, guaranteed bonus, all stuff. It was just one year after one year after one year. Um, he kind of already did that. So, um, so I went with McDaniels and, and, you know, honestly cried to my family and felt really bad about it because I just felt like New England was my family, which they still are. But at the time it was really tough. And so when I go there, you know, everyone wants to know how the Patriots did it. What was so, what was the special sauce, the Patriots way and do your job and all this stuff. And so there was a lot of pressure, uh, especially with McDaniels being such a young coach and uh, a lot of turnover in that team from the years past um, Shanahan and stuff. So, you know, a lot to live up to. We, we were six and oh, right out of the gate and people were like, wow, this is, this is how you do it. And then we were two and eight the rest of the year. <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it didn't end up that well. And when, then we go through the, you know, the Tebow craziness and, and all that stuff. And so it was different. Um, I'll, I'll always remember Denver as, you know, giving me that chance of a, of a lifetime and that opportunity to, to uh, you know, get that guaranteed bonus. And uh you know, had our kids there and had some great friends. And it was it was definitely a step uh, towards, you know, the afterlife of, of football, for sure. You were able to go back and sign a one day with New England to retire a Patriot. I know you hit on it a little bit, but what kind of speak on what that meant to you to kind of go return back to where it all started? That was pretty special. Um, you know, I, I think I was on Instagram one day and I saw someone do it and I text my agent and I was like, hey, could I do this too? <laughs> and and they're like, yeah, yeah, let me call Mr. Kraft and see what's up. So I didn't, didn't really plan for it. I was just, hey, but this would be awesome to just kind of, you know, tie it in a, on a bow and, and send it, you know, off into, uh, you know, history. And so um, my kids never got a chance to see me play. So it was a great chance for me to take my son out there and just do a little boys trip over, you know, I think it was a two night trip, but it was special. It was great to just uh, see the people who I, you know, kind of left in years past. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of tradition and a lot of history there. So it felt really, uh, you know, it felt like a little bit of closure and, and, and it also, you know, there's, there's things I still do for the Patriots nowadays that I feel like I can kind of say that it ended, you know, as a Patriot. I'm actually glad you brought that up because we were going to ask you about the Patriot way. Um, we've, you know, heard it a million times, Reed being in Buffalo, me being in Miami, my coach, Coach Flores, having had roots uh, in, in New England for, for so many years. Um, he obviously brought a lot of, a lot of that to uh, Miami with just out-preparing, out-working, you know, out-discipline your opponent. And um, it seems like you've taken that to – everything that you do off the field after you've retired, you, you know, you're heavily involved in the community business, things like that. How have you taken the Patriot way, the out prepare, do your job type mentality to what you do now? You know, it's funny. I mean, the, the Patriot way is kind of this, you know, media has blown this thing up on it. Honestly, I think it's such a team sport way of preparing. I don't think it's, I mean, every team and every team sport athlete, every, I mean, just person who wants to succeed, I, I feel like prepares that way. You know, it's just been tagged as the Patriot way. It's funny, B. Flow. I mean, he was younger than you when I first met him. And, you know, he was just getting coffee and, and you know, staying, you know, working 23 hours a day. And now he's a head coach. And a lot of these started guys, the, you know. in the scouting department, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. And then he was, a, he, was you know, he was shagging the balls for us. Uh, that, you know, when we're off on the side punting and, and, and kicking field goals, just seeing those growth of everyone and, and this kind of this foundation that, you know, Belichick and Mr. Kraft and the team just brought to life with the, the nucleus of guys we had. 
you know, 2000 was kind of anomaly and 60% of that roster disappeared. And then in 2001, that's when, when Bledsoe got hurt and Tom kind of rose to the top and the team rallied to support him. It was 9-11, you know, we beat the Rams. It was this crazy year and that kind of just set the foundation for how a lot of us approach everything in life, in sports, in business. Um, and I feel like it's helped me succeed in a corporate culture because a lot of times yeah, you'll, you'll find when you guys are in it that they feel like they're on scholarship a lot of times. And for me, like I said before, I still feel like I, I'm only as good as yesterday. So I got to do something better today than I did yesterday. Or I'm not going to be here tomorrow. Whether it's like that or not, I really don't care. It's just how I try to approach it. And it helps, it helps me feel like I got the most out of those relationships and, and what I've been doing, you know, rather than, uh, you know, just feeling like you're treading water and you're supposed to be here because of, you know, who people think you are. Tell us about some of your uh, business ventures that you uh, are a part of now. I know when you quit playing, uh, you joined forces with GoPro uh, and have since been involved with a couple of other opportunities. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. So, you know, when I was playing, um, well, before that, I grew up in Southern California and, and really had like a, a pulse in action sports and the brands involved and the Red Bulls and Oakleys and, and uh, you know, Monsters and Rockstar and these types of brands that support these types of athletes. And so throughout my career, I was kind of the guy in the locker room who'd get the swag and go to the events and, and, you know, be kind of this conduit. I had a Red Bull fridge in my locker. And so I became this ambassador for them. And so they would fly me to events. And through this process, I would meet, you know, their corporate and do other events and go to the X games and speak and, you know, hand medals to the athletes and stuff like that. And on my way out, this, the vice president of Red Bull became the VP of, of GoPro. And, uh, you know, I'd, didn't ask him for a job. I just asked him for an opportunity and, and just talk to the right people and, you know, determine how I can be a resource. And so when I left the league, GoPro was kind of right there. I got cut in August and was signed uh, to a contract by them in December. Literally the same day a contract for the, for the Chargers came in to Mike went hurt his, uh, he broke his arm and they needed three games. And I had to make this kind of life altering decision. Do I go get three games or do I stick to my guns with this, with this opportunity with GoPro and, and show them that I could do it. So I had to make that decision. And I chose, I think I chose wisely, but throughout the GoPro process, traveling the world and working with athletes and events and, and celebrities and other brands and creating content, all this stuff, it's given me a lot of tools to then be able to pivot, you know, post COVID they had a ton of reductions and, now I'm kind of in this advisory consultant role with a handful of brands. One's a direct-to-consumer wine company that has Ashton Kutcher involved and Stephen Amell, and um, I lead strategy for them. Another one is Kind Humans, which is like a Amazon for good. It's this marketplace where you can go and find all the sustainable goods that are good for you, the planet, and your kids, and the earth and stuff. I have a film project with, with a couple big athletes who've, who've suffered from traumatic brain injuries that are now thriving uh, after the specialized treatment that they've received. And so we're filming the, the first part of that in January in Jackson Hole. And, you know, I didn't know I'd have all my hands in these things along the way, but, but it's being able to bridge that time spent in the league, delivering what you learned in the league to the corporate setting, and then, you know, stacking that, that list of contacts and network and, and creative ideas to then be able, able to package that up and then now spread that into multiple partners has been been uh, rewarding, tough, tricky. I got four kids under nine at home. So it's just a, you know, I'm like a clown every day, just juggling stuff. Yeah. La last thing, just to kind of, uh, to kind of build on what you were just touching on, 
you started the Active Force Foundation uh, when you were playing. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about that? That's something that uh, Blake and I were pretty interested in when we saw that, uh, when we were doing a little bit of reading up on you. Kind of tell us what how, how that started and how it's continuing now. Well, how it started um, was a guy I went to high school with was kind of on this path to becoming a, a sponsored athlete and snowboarder and professional snowboarder. And he, he did a double – tried to backflip, but he over-rotated and landed on his, his shoulders and broke his back and was airlifted out of there and up to Reno. And so I spent a few days with him in, hosp- in the hospital, literally, you know, when he just learned that he was paralyzed. And, um, you know, through this process became much, much closer than we already were. And uh, he ended up being, being my roommate uh, in Southern California. So when I was gone, he would kind of hold the fort down and stuff. And through this process of being an athlete who's now injured, you know, was just struggling to find something active to do and something to continue his passion, which was, in, you know, in the mountains and, you know, snow and, and dirt biking and stuff. And so we, we, we met up with this bike engineer who had, had developed uh, mountain bikes before and we told him this idea. And all of a sudden we came up with this four wheel mountain bike that was, you know, made for adaptive sports and, was able to, uh, you know, take on some of the same terrain as, as mountain bikes were on two wheels. And so we raised a, a bunch of money, did, you know, events at, at, at bars and, and uh, charitable events and golf tournaments and stuff to help raise money to develop, you know, a handful of these bikes to then implement them into these adaptive sports programs. And so where it's at today is a lot of everyone kind of is going their separate ways with life and, and resources and it's really hard. I, you know, I don't. We don't have the Tom Brady name or the the budget of some of his sponsors. So it was a lot lot trickier to put this thing together and and get ten of them into the wild. Uh, so kids and people, of, you know, with disabilities and veterans could use. Um, so they they kind of live in Colorado at at uh, a couple of their mountain resorts and in their adaptive programs. And so we're we're hands off on that a lot of the, you know, these days, but it's uh, something that we still support and still try to find ways to create content around market, the idea, uh, make it, make people aware that this actually exists. But for the longest time there, it was, it was just a passion project from three friends with, you know, three separate worlds coming together and, and making it happen. That's awesome. And Lonnie, we really appreciate you spending so much time with us today. Reed actually lied on the last question. This is actually going to be the last question. Uh, and we ask it to everybody who joins uh, the show. Your favorite and least favorite away stadiums that you played in. Uh, we have some some pretty pretty funny stories of away locker rooms that were you know just disgusting. And so we we've kind of heard uh, from a lot of different guys about different stadiums. What were your favorite and least favorite away stadiums that you played in? Well, you know, you two guys represent two teams that I hated playing away uh, for various reasons. Um, you know, Buffalo being just that little hole in the freaking tunnel where you never knew when you were going to walk outside what type of weather you're going to get. You know, the, uh, Oakland had a pretty bad one when it was it was Oakland. And just – and even – I mean, I played in uh, Candlestick, you know, with uh, – and but, but my mind goes immediately. You're in there and you're taking your pregame dump and you're like, okay, I bet Joe Montana has probably sat right here. Or I bet <laughs> Howie Long has probably sat right here and is reading the program just <laughs> like I am. So for me, I'm just like I, – I go into – yes, it's small, but I'm like it's part of the history of it and just the – I don't know. I just would – put myself into like, you know, the 60s or whatever when people were just playing in the same stadium. You know, the best I thought like field-wise was uh, Washington. Always had a really good – like their field was almost like on the 18th green of a – 
I don't know what it's like today, but that's right when the stadium was brand new. And, you know, it was just a, I don't know, it was early in September, October. It was really good. You know, the, the Jets fans were just the worst. So, you know, as far as facilities, I would say like to California stadiums and Buffalo, but the Jets just fans alone. I mean, they were so good at being punks that you just hated it, but it was kind of laughable, you know, when you would, they would, they would know your background. They'd know, you know, who you dated in high school. They'd know like your mom's name. Uh, they did their research. Well, man, we, uh, we can't thank you enough for spending the time with us today and, you know, best of luck to you in your business uh, ventures as well as uh, with your work in the community. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you guys. Well, we want to give a huge shout out to Lonnie Paxton for joining the pod this week. Big thank you to him. Uh, we had such a great time interviewing him and kind of learning more about who he is and his story. Uh, if you want to follow him on social media, you can at Lonnie Paxton, L-O-N-I-E, P-A-X-T-O-N, Lonnie Paxton on Instagram. He's uh, super active, showing off all the cool things uh, that he's doing in his after football life. Blake, I, I, before you end it, I have a, I have a, I have a question for you. All right. This this came about a couple of weeks ago at the breakfast table at the facility, but resurfaced last week uh, when the topic came up again. How many ketchup packets do you think you've opened in your entire life? A lot. I would say. So you say on each usage for any for any given meal, you're probably using. I would say on average three, two to three ish. Which which I think is why they made those bigger packets. Yeah, um, the ones that Chick Fil A have. Yep. Yep. Um, but I goodness, thousands. I, that's I mean, what. That's what. That's a, that was a popular answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if I had to put the over under at two grand, two thousand ketchup packets, would you say over, over, over? Yeah, as much as you and I both like ketchup. And it has become such a staple of. I mean, our, I feel like I used ketchup food, almost food every day, yeah. like at school lunches, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're using yeah. it for a hamburger or a chicken fingers or a yep. chicken breast, French fries, you know, whatever we were eating, and you know, as meatloaf. Uh, <laughs> meatloaf, you know, hamburger <laughs> steak, you know, whatever we were eating. Was I the at only lunch. one? Was I the only one that ate meatloaf at school? <laughs> Some kind of mystery meat. Now that I think about it, it's probably not my smartest move uh, because it was probably just the Salisbury steak from the previous day made into meatloaf. That's what it was. Um, Yeah, thousands of say (laughs) over two thousand. You would hit. You would go over. Yeah, definitely over. Over three thousand. I was thinking more between four and five. I might just sit down and do the math one day. I sat down on. I mean, I use two. I use two to three on my eggs for breakfast four to yeah. five days a week. So, I sat down on I sat down on Sunday to eat a Philly cheesesteak uh, with some fries because I was really feeling that for football on Sunday watching. And I I mean I think I had like six or seven packets in that sitting there alone. There you go. So that's two I mean, days worth. That's two breakfasts. That's yeah. That's over the daily average. Uh yeah. Let's go four to 5,000. That's all that we have for this week's show. We hope that you enjoyed uh, the interview with Lonnie Paxton, and we hope that you'll join us uh, for another special guest coming up very soon. 
As always, you can follow us on social media at After the Snap Pod, Instagram, and Twitter. We love our listeners and we love our subscribers even more. So uh, subscribe to the pod, give us a rating. Uh, that really helps us uh, grow as a podcast. So this has been After the Snap, tales from two brothers who live life upside down.